Hey, welcome to Reality 2.0 by Linux Journal. I am Catherine Druckmann. I'm talking today to Doc Searles, Editor-in-Chief of Linux Journal, and Kyle Rankin, our technical editor, and many other things that are cool. Um, <laughs> I like to see all that spelled out. I know, right? <laughs> M-O-T-T-A-C. Many other things that are cool, yeah. like, for example, being the cool security guy um, that's going to save us all. Right, Kyle? It's going to save us for our own, from our own incompetence. At, le- at least some of us. At least some of us. Oh, thank God. I, hope yeah. I'm in the gold. I, don't, I don't know about the rest of the world, but I have faith. I have faith that you will, you're coming up with some really good stuff. I'm, thro- I'm throwing out the life jacket, and I hope people grab it. How about that's that? That's awesome. I think that's <laughs> a great. See, you always have the greatest analogy. I'm going to grab it. I'm gonna Are you alive? On. Have a jacket. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, so Doc, we were just talking about. Oh, um, uh, we were talking about commenting and commenting, and um, community, all that stuff. Yeah. So, so there's a an open source project called Coral, the Coral project. It's um been under the Mozilla umbrella for some time. It was incubated there. I guess that's the right term. Um, many major publications are using it, uh, and websites are using it, and um. Uh, and the main reason we're not, and you can correct me on this, is that we it really needs a moderator. It, it's kind of a professional grade thing where you have a lot of comments and you have a good moderation uh, of it. And we we're talking about how that's actually a good calling. I mean, and that's a good a, a good thing to have. But the interesting thing is that Mozilla's uh, put it up for adoption, basically. Um, which, I mean, I. I, I, I who knows what the backstory is on that? I'm sure they do, but um, it seems to me like, geez, this is really successful. You'd want to keep it, but I guess they don't. So maybe a better home for it can be found. But I do recommend it. I mean, I, I've had great talks with them. I like their commenting when I see it, um, and maybe uh, a listener can help find it a home. It, it's like you. <laughs> I was thinking it's like the. It's like go to the lost pet place. <laughs> <laughs> find projects for adoption. We need. Uh, hey, maybe that's our next calling—a a shelter. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's, it's the code shelter for for code to adopt. Sure. But it's actually a, a go project. It has a staff. It has people and volunteers in the community and all that. So um, it's kind of the Apache project, isn't it? Isn't that sort of where they have all the code up on cinder blocks in the front yard? <laughs> I, I, I suppose. <laughs> They, instead of a feather, they should have a cinder block as the <laughs> as the symbol. <laughs> yeah, it's a it's just two old Camaros jacked up on blocks in the front yard. That's the. <laughs> so so the whole so comments. I mean, comments are what are comments about if not community, right? And and so that's something that that y'all have both spent a bit of time talking about recently. Um, yeah. Well, I don't know. I, I mean, I've been in a way too many conversations actually but um an interesting thing i'd just like to throw out there is that um i uh we were saying offline but we were recording so maybe it'll be online and you could slipstream it in here somewhere that the um that that often with local newspapers and stuff you get almost flame wars going on inside inside comments but there's another side to it which is when you have disasters that happen like is ha- are happening in California right now we're seeing this in southern California which is where I'm not right now I'm in New York but um we're going there 
this weekend and uh, we'll be home there in Santa Barbara and which is covered in smoke right now and we'll have to drive down roads that are burned totally on both sides and where people died and but what happens is when you have that kind of stuff going on the local news gets really good in some ways because you have a lot of people informing each other with stuff they need to know it's like it, especially what runs under a twitter hashtag in if you sort for latest uh that i found that with the the woolsey fire with the camp fire which is stupidly named because it wasn't a campfire it was named after a camp um but that's i mean that's where right now they're locating people who are probably dead i mean you know 200 some people are still missing and and you get really serious when disasters are going on uh and i i didn't write about this i I gave a ted talk about it in um in september so if you look up uh tedx santa barbara you'll find what i said about that it's only 10 minutes long so it's not a total waste of your time um but but that's sort of my point about journalism like i think journalism blew up basically it's in little bitty pieces everywhere um it's so destroyed by everybody everybody reporting and complete tribalism and no more there is no more more or less objective source of news on television or what used to be television uh but they're but when it matters, when it isn't just reacting to something some politician said, uh, you tend to get the good stuff coming out um, online. And, and, and it happens at the local level. And I, I sort of feel like as digital beings, we're kind of rebuilding some institutions from the grassroots up and starting with local news in hard times. It's a theory. I'm not sure I'm even right about that, but I think I think it, I think I am. What do you think, Kyle? <laughs> oh, wow. Let me, yeah, yeah, let me, Heavy. let me, let me dive right into not my element. Okay. Um, <laughs> I do that with Linux all the time, man. <laughs> so it's okay. Well, what's interesting is you're seeing, yeah, you're seeing both with like local news, which is our, already has a local uh, flavor to it. You're seeing even online communities because there's an absence of community in other ways you know for example in my community there's there are community forums focused on just our town and you know since we are in wildfire area often when you see a some smoke somewhere the first place we go now isn't even you know isn't really like social media or anything other than this local forum because somebody um, in the town knows the scoop of, oh yeah, that's a grass fire over on the corner of such and such and so-and-so. Um, and there's a lot of that sort of thing that's, pe- because people have this innate need for this community, um, for community with other people. And if you're not necessarily getting it in your neighborhoods, for whatever reason, you're not necessarily walking next door, you're, everyone's sort of in their, it's weird, everyone's in their home, but they're still building, sim- trying to rebuild similar communities through these um, neighborhood uh, forums. Yeah, you know, I, I, as you were saying that, I had a thought about it um, uh, in California. So I mean, what happened with Paradise, the town of Paradise, is it was just overcome by fire way faster than anybody expected. And the whole town pretty much, I mean, there are like two buildings oh, still yeah. standing or something. And But in here in New York on the subway, in every car, there's like this um, 
there's this this red yo-yo like thing hanging from the ceiling at one end that's like the emergency brake for the whole freaking train right and it's and you can yank on the thing and i think what happens is the whole train comes to a stop i mean it the 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 whatever when i guess the engineer the pilot the person up front whatever they, they lose control it the whole thing stops but i almost wonder whether there's we need something like that that is really the the panic button you need for a community like that when it really is bad and there's no other way to find out from each other uh i, I was thinking that in the, in the oakland fire which is the prior worst fire in the state's history for destructiveness it was like i don't know like three thousand buildings burned and uh, homes burned and uh, there was um i think like 26 people died but some friends of mine lived up there they lost two houses and they used to live in Rhodesia, which is now Zimbabwe. And but they grew up in Rhodesia, as they said. They had British accents and and um they'd seen wildfires. They knew where it was going to go and they ran around the neighborhood getting everybody out that they possibly could. And but I was thinking I wonder if there's some some something in the vernacular of an open source approach to this that might be, you know, the button we need. You know, for that, I don't know if there is or not, but I'm thinking there might be something that we shouldn't have to wait for the feds to say, you know, 911 is going to be the number you call or something else like that. Maybe it's some other, some other thing. 811, which is uh, dig safe, is is vernacular. That was made up. You know, when you see the colors on the sidewalk, where where red stands for electric and green stands for potable water, or the red, no, blue is potable water. Yellow is gas, I think. That kid, that was vernacular. That, there was nothing formal about that, but it got adopted worldwide. Similar kind well, of thing. Well, with the emergency alert in in the campfire up up in Paradise, I mean, one of the things that I had read that they were struggling with was deciding um, from the municipality. There there was a you know like the Amber Alert that everyone gets in California yeah. now that goes to your cell phone, right? They were debating over how far to cast that net. Because at first it seemed like they didn't want to, for right. what ultimately happened, like the evacuation to clog all the roads, um, which had happened anyway. But they, so they only sent evacuation notices to a very small group, apparently at first. And then by the time, you know, it, the fire moved so quickly that the, by the time they did that, it was sort of too late. But then, you know, it, I, I question what it would be like to put that button in someone else's. It's almost like the, that Hawaii emergency alert. Um, test that happened when it looked like we were you know undergoing nuclear war and then for a couple of moments right everyone was, yeah was yeah freaking yeah out, right right and that was just someone you know making a mistake but you know i think about that button in the community in a in a you know community full of trolls and everyone else and pranksters yeah, exactly and, we're, we're, we're yeah we're, a lot of so, people are paranoid anyway right so this is this is interesting and it kind of ties into stuff that we've been talking about lately in terms of well, we, we enjoy sort of pontificating about our, our own existence and our role in the world, right? And I'm thinking in terms of these sort of emergency alerts, these red yo-yos, and the conversations we have about open source communities and our role in them. Um, you know, talking, there, there are all these things going on right now where, where there's, there's maybe a shift, maybe there's a lack of awareness of our own roots, maybe maybe there's an indifference that's sort of built in because a lot of people who are new to these open source communities um, 
maybe take certain things for granted. I don't know. Maybe that's possible. Well, uh, and maybe, I mean, maybe there's a conversation to be had here about our own role as canaries in this, yeah. in this, in this, in this mine, right? Well, no, I I'm, I'm really, I'm definitely feeling like a canary because you know I feel like I've seen all of the stuff that we're that I'm starting to see now. I saw it before the first time that you know that Linux and free software and the whole movement rose up to fight giants that they felt like were you know locking them into platforms and all of that. And the same thing's happening again. And yeah, some of it is that we have new community members that are that have joined um, who haven't been here the whole time and haven't lived through that prior experience. So they don't have that background knowledge and they often don't have that back, the background um, philosophy behind what the community is, was always about. You know, there was a point where you could throw a rock and hit anybody in the Linux community who would be able to explain the GPL to you and everything else around, you know, the community. Um, but now it's not the case, and it's not necessarily that that's it's it's bad in this sense. You know, it's not the person's fault because we have people joining that are using the software for all kinds of different reasons now to serve these different purposes. Um, it's it's only bad in the sense that they are missing out on a lot of protection that that comes when you understand um, the freedoms that you don't have. Essentially, like there's all of these warning signs that you can see when. Uh, when a vendor starts doing certain things to try to lock you into a platform, and you can avoid those things if you, you know, if you learn lessons from the past. But like with every other thing outside of the software community, you'll have this, you'll have, you know, cycles in history of people who experience some kind of a freedom, and then, you know, people then after a while, people take it for granted either because they didn't go through that, that hardship, that that struggle for that freedom, and then you have someone that attempts to take it away. I mean, it's it's happening in our community as well as any other community. Right. So I wonder, yeah. so what, you know, I wonder like what, so, so given that, so, you know, what can, what can we do? I mean, aside from, we obviously have a very prominent role in promoting, you know, free software. Um, there's something that I've, I've, I've talked about a little bit on, on previous um, podcasts and, and that's the, uh, the licensing thing. You know, there we, we've written a few articles about it, or we've published a few articles about it, um, and that is this this notion that um, some of the big companies like Amazon, whatnot, are using software and profiting from them and not giving enough back to the community, and uh, certain players are getting testy about that, and you know some possibly knee-jerk solutions have been to change licensing, which then causes a whole cascade of other problems. Um, so I'm just wondering, I don't know if you have any thoughts about that. I, I, well, I'll, I'll, I'll throw a, a, a couple of small things out there. One is that, um, I mean, I, I, an interesting thing is that I would say licensing was, if you looked at the pie chart of topics uh, that we talked about, which is have like, licensing particular code bases and especially you know uh, languages or something like that and you know ruby will come and go and some others will sort of come and go as hot things and um but licensing was always a really big part of it and um of what we talked about but it was among you know a relatively small group that is now a very small percentage of a very large group that in in uh, I guess 02 or 03 or something like that, I wrote a, one of my 
editorials was called A Tale of Three Cultures. And I'd been at th- th- two or three different trade shows. And um, I think one was a, you know, a Linux world. Another one was uh, an embedded show. And, and, and it was about embedded Linux. And the interesting, th- and the third one was Hollywood and, and copyright. And, and copyright is sort of faded as a big concern. But but the I, I noted that the embedded people really, really, really almost across the board did not give a shit about uh, the what Linux was about. There was no, there was not even Wi-Fi in the place. I mean, it was like, what's going on? I mean, just, everybody was basically just using <laughs> Linux, including embedded Linux, with special forms of embedded Linux that were around at the time, to um, to just do whatever they were doing, just you know, a simple thing, and. I think we're kind of there now, and I'm not sure changing licensing does anything. I I think that it's more a matter of consciousness, and how do you keep that consciousness up? Uh, we're another conversation I've been involved with is saving the internet. I mean, what's happening now is that it isn't just the big platforms; it's that the governments really want national boundaries, and you know, the, we've talked about the GDPR on other podcasts, and which is that. Basically, the GDPR has sort of partitioned Europe out from the rest of the world if you're doing advertising, if you're doing tracking-based advertising. Go to Europe or take a VPN into Europe and try to look at the LA Times or a number of other U.S.-based publications, and you won't see them. They'll say, no, we can't be there because you, Europe has rules and we don't want to obey those rules, so screw you. Um, but part of it is that they... they Governments loved having national boundaries where they could collect a tariff. Uh, and and there's you just hear more and more about stakeholders with Internet governance. And all the stakeholders are not you and me, and they're not developers, and they're not the authors of the standards that made the Internet possible. It's the phone companies and the cable companies and the governments and then, you know, the you know, pr- privacy organizations and NGOs and stuff like that. The, the people who go to Davos and other stuff like that, but not you and me. And it's a similar thing. And and I almost wonder whether it's kind of like we, we have to play the role that churches play in 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 the physical world. You know, they're this is where people care about a higher a higher power, <laughs> you know, but right. Um, but sanctuary, it's really, the code sanctuary. And yeah, so, but, you know, I, I kind of want to say, you know, what the people who made gravity <laughs> matter, you know, and and that's what's holding you into this thing. It's the gravity. But uh, and I'm not sure it's a losing cause. I mean, I, I certainly fight it all the time, but it's it's a tough one. So, Kyle, I mean, so you're, you know, you're a security person. That is what you do. That's you probably live and breathe it to an extent. So, I mean. I wonder what your thoughts are in terms of, from from a security mindset almost. I mean, they, you know, protecting ourselves and protecting our communities and protecting our projects and all of those things are probably interconnected, right? I wondered if you might have any thoughts on that. Well, what I've noticed in the industry right now, especially among security people, is a lot of times. I mean, it's a it's a question of priorities, and so among security people. Security is typically their top priority and everything is viewed through that lens. Um, and so if someone has a new measure that comes out, a new technology that comes out, if it if it improves security, 
Um, and then generally it's considered, okay, well, that's, that's what we want to do regardless of all of the other outcomes, or at least the other outcomes aren't as important. Um, and the way I, I see this a lot in terms of, uh, like you'll see it recently, like Apple came out with their T2 chip, right? And it was touted in the, in what made the security community excited is there's this great high security chip that's on the hardware, which is great. It can do all kinds of interesting cryptographic operations. Oh, and, and by the way, you know, side, side statement. Oh, yeah, well, it can also, you know, make sure that all the OS and firmware updates are signed and everything basically goes through, goes through Apple. Um, yeah. And there's a lot of security features that are, that are going out today that are basically making it so that you, you can't even get to, can't even think about rooting a phone. And that's, that's great if you want to protect your phone from an attacker. But if you care about owning your device, then it's problematic because before it was a you know there's a some kind of a lock of some kind but but you know it's all in the name of security and that's some of the some of the aim i mean people aren't going to go out and say well yeah i'm doing this so that you have to get everything through me your vendor but you know there's all of this side side issues with this that just came out today there were there's some stories about the fact that this particular chip will make it problematic for certain repair shops if they're not using um tools that are blessed by apple to do the repairs, they might get locked out of, of repairing MacBooks. Wow. Yeah, there, there's this assumption that, um, and it's a very much an industrial age one, that um, that f full agency should only, that only the big companies can do the really important things. Like, you want real security, it's going to have to come from an Apple or a Microsoft or a, your name here, um, and not something you can do for yourself and and that's another thing that was this has been very big in our world from the beginning which is that you should be able to you know write your own code see your own code inspect your own code share the code have that freedom pass on to others so it can't be locked down um and uh and that's you know we're we're I'm just amazed at the extent to which people acquiesce to that. It's kind of like it's sort of like, you know, the, a hammer or a screwdriver isn't going to work unless you unless it's this brand name and you buy it from so and so, and you're you're renting it from them and they and they, you know, allow you to use it on a, a subscription basis. But really, they're the only ones that have the power to let you use a hammer. Uh, it's wrong, uh, but it's a hard case to make when the world is as complex and full of dangers as you know uh as the connected world is right now yeah well and a, and a lot of people you know if they're faced with the decision of well i can i can be 100 percent secure i think or i hope um i do have to hand all of my keys over to another company to watch them for me but i reasonably trust that company maybe um and so i'm willing to make that trade-off you know there's plenty of people who are willing to make that trade-off uh, if there's a compelling enough story, I mean, I hear that I hear that all the all the time from people uh, who, whether whether it's a company like Apple or Google or whoever, they say, well, I, I imagine their security teams probably, you know, their security teams really good, which they are, um, so they probably will be okay. It's 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 fine for me to pull, put all of my trust in them, um, but it's not a one or zero kind of equation there. Like you can you can still have good security and good locks on your things without having to hand complete control over to a third party to do everything for you. And because if you hand everything over to that party, 
um, it creates all of these other incentives. There's all of these other things, powers that they have over you. If they control all of your secrets. You were screwed. <laughs> Surely that can't be the only conclusion. I mean, Surely. I mean, it's, 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 it's not. It's just that's why things like free software matter. You know, that's why, you know, things like you should be able to use software for any purpose and not discriminate against fields of endeavor and things like that. That's why that matters. That's why the ability to audit the code matters, because that's the other thing is in a lot of these cases, we're being protected by these locks that we we are having to rely on someone, you know, telling us that it's everything's great, but they're not sharing any, they're not certainly share, sharing any code with us so that we can audit it. They're not allowing, they might hire a pen testing firm that in secret audits things, but you know, you can't have, there's no one independent that's going in and auditing it. Uh, we certainly can't look at it, but we're deciding to lock things up with it. I mean, that's why all of those freedoms matter. And there it's possible to build you know, secure devices, secure software that you can also audit the code. Um, and you get, you, you have to have, ultimately you have to have freedom if you want security, uh, because otherwise you're sort of just handing, if you're handing your security over to someone else and you don't have um, freedom, one to move it to move it to another party, if that party becomes untrustworthy, then you have a problem. I mean, we saw that, we see that in the certificate authority system where, you know, we had this gigantic system uh, where anyone can buy from a lot of different authorities certificates to put on their website. So you get the nice little lock icon um, or, you know, it turns green now or what, whichever browser you use. And that's great, um, except that there's some some certificate authorities are more trustworthy than others. And we've had a history of some of them being hacked. And then when they're hacked, all of those certificates are now um, questionable because if you hack them, you can um, make it generate whatever certificate you want, right? And so there's this, because we're handing, you're, you're handing over all of this trust to a third party, um, in the case of a certificate authority, you could say, well, that's a bad actor. We can just not trust them. And you poor customers that use them, I guess you have to buy from someone else. But in the case of a lot of other solutions, we don't have that mobility. We don't have the ability to say, well, now you're no longer operating in my interests. So I'm going to just easily move everything over to someone else. Um, in many cases, you know, that same thing that made them secure is the same thing that locks you into the platform. So you don't really have a choice. So I guess, I mean, you know, the first struggle is maybe awareness. I mean, there are obviously, and, and if, you know, at the beginning of our conversation, we're, we're talking about how even in our own open source communities, there's becoming maybe a lack of awareness. Um, so I just wonder, like, now these the the issues that 25 years ago were only relevant to a small group of hardcore geeks are now relevant to everyone. Everyone has a powerful device. Everyone has um, certain vulnerabilities that you know regular people just didn't have a while ago. But I'm wondering, like, as people are becoming more aware and then be becoming more reliant on the big the apples of the world, um, what is the parallel then for the open source community to maintain their level of awareness and vigilance um, to, like you say, sort of maintain the level of autonomy that's necessary for real freedom and security. Like, I don't, I'm, I'm wondering how these things fit together, that's all. Well, so those of us who were there for the first round, we have an obligation to, um, in a non-abrasive, friendly way, 
tell our story and tell uh, tell the account of the things that we already went through the first round um, with the big tech tech firms of the time that were abusing their their in some cases monopoly powers over certain things to lock people in and reduce the freedom. Um, if we one, we have a responsibility to share that story with new people in the community who just weren't around for that or weren't aware of it. Um, and explaining, there's huge parallels to be drawn between all of those fights then and what we have now. I mean, right now, it's just you have a lot of people in the community that are unaware of even a lot of these notions of freedom. To them, open source software is a crowdfunding campaign for your code. You know, it's a it's a way for you to get your code out there to get the com some community to pop up and help you bug fix and, and write the software. Um, but there's not as much of a... You, you can do all of that without having to understand the principles behind it. And so, you know, the, the community that exists has an obligation to to continue to share those lessons in an approachable way that's, you know, taking taking into account a lot of people that are in the community now just, you know, they're they don't use Linux, maybe even on the desktop at all. You know, they might clock into work, write a Linux application on a MacBook, um, clock out, go home and not really deal with with Linux or free software at all. I mean, they will have, even though their house is all running off of it, you know, um, they will directly not do it. And it's just, it's not their interest, but they're also, but they're still a member of the community. And, and we have to figure out ways to communicate with those members of the community, those of us who have been here for a long time um, and get them more involved and aware of all of these issues. So that's sort of, that's on us and, um, on the new members of the community, it's more just a case of, of you know, I would encourage those people to try to get us to try to make an effort to learn both these philosophies. A great way to place to start is just looking at the Free Software Foundation for Freedoms. That's what everything else is kind of based on. Um, and then beyond that, you know, pull over, pull a gray beard over and ask them to tell you about the good old days um, when they were, you know, doing fighting against and, and defeating you know, major tech giants, it seemed insurmountable at the time, but we did it. And that's the other thing that happened is, is everyone sort of got complacent because everyone's patting each other on the back about how we dominate the cloud and we're in everyone's pocket and we're in everyone's um, kitchen now. Uh, but while that's technically true, uh, it's also really hidden. You know, Linux exists everywhere, but it's all under this shield mm -hmm. of proprietary APIs. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, it's hidden under many layers. You would never know that it's there. You'd never know the free soft that it's that the freedoms that you have because of the way it's been wrapped and packaged. So how do we make it cool again to memorize and recite the GPL? How do we make that cool? <laughs> you know, there's a bakery down the street from me actually that on Pi Day every year, if you can recite, you know, X number of digits of Pi, you get free pie. <laughs> Maybe we need to start right. giving out free pie for reciting. I mean, I mean, maybe, you know, maybe reciting some of that stuff will never be cool for everybody. But um, but I, I think, you know, what resonates with I think it resonates with the average person when they're being taken advantage of in one way or the other. Um, people tend to care somewhat about their own, at least their own personal freedom and privacy, I found. So, you know, you may not if you're talking to someone about some of the problems with um, some of this big data collection. You know, if you t if you put it in terms of their personal privacy, and you know, everyone typically has something that they um, that's some sort of red line for them when it comes to privacy. You know, for a lot of people in the U.S., it ended up being all of this data collection 
um, and ad targeting being used um, to sit, to give you political ads. So you know, I can I can manipulate you to buy a toaster, but if I'm but if I manipulate you to vote a certain way, then that's a bridge too far, right? And so that got a lot of people to care about those issues uh, that didn't that didn't before, you know. So if you make it personal, a lot of people you know didn't grow up in a world where vendors were requiring you to use their platform and you had no choice. Um, so you could, I mean, right now, as a result, everyone has five messaging apps on their phone uh, and there's no need for it. It's just that's everyone, every one of those vendors wants to lock you into their own platform. It doesn't want to get along with anybody else. For now. For now. <laughs> Until there's yeah, it, I think, you know, yeah. I think one of the hardest jobs is, um, is explain is actually the one that free software has had from the beginning, which is how how do you how do we explain that the reason that Linux won was that or likely was to some degree that it used the GPL and not a more permissive you might say license um, that it you know that it was copy lefted that it was you know that 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 had the that had the tendency to make the whole thing cohere in ways that might not if anybody could just take it and run off and do whatever they wanted with it which by the way is what's happening now anyway but it's but what made it take off and and kind of hold together in the first place was that um and i mean i think that's probably what was behind all the different um distributions though that i don't know whether that's arguable or not but there's but I, it, it seems to me that there's, you know, I, I'm trying to think of ways that we could talk about the connection between freedom and what it is that makes the world, right? And that's, that's a, it's a hard one to do. It's kind of like we take gravity for granted, but there's a principle involved. And, and it's almost like what we're doing is, it, it's it's a it's a golden egg goose thing, right? There's it's better to you know reproduce the goose that lays the golden eggs rather than just take the golden eggs off somewhere and 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 sell them or whatever. And and there's a there's a goose that lays golden eggs quality to the the freedom that goes into software that can be examined and. Um, and used for any purpose and and the other you know the the other essential freedoms and it's it's a hard one it's just a hard one to explain i mean it's even why we came up with the term open source instead of free software i think we might have been better off calling it freedom software that might have been clearer um but even there i don't know i don't know i mean i, I it's something we've been struggling with from the beginning it's just a harder struggle now oddly that after the product of it is so widely used. Yeah, well, it's it's easier to take for granted now because you don't really miss you don't miss a freedom that you already have. You know, so right. right now, for the most part, I mean, it's starting to turn the other way, but we're on the other side of that that peak in the hill where it seemed for a, a while there. Oh, great, everyone's you know, it's very easy to to have software be promoted with an open source open source or free software license and all of that. Um, but now we're on the other side of that, where now companies have figured out a way to both, you know, nod in that direction and use the software that they want to use so that they don't, you know, to make it faster to market and all of that. Um, 
while also figuring out a way to to close around it and wrap it in proprietary layers um, that still give them the same power over over their customers that they that they had beforehand. Yeah. Um, yeah. So it's just more that the the challenge is it's a way it's a way more insidious than it was originally. Originally, it was a case of oh well, if you run this operating system on your computer then you're locked in and you can't see the source code and if there's a problem they can you know they can force you to do xyz but now it's way more insidious because you have the sense of well you can see the code um in some cases but in other cases you can't and and you know they're they have a you know in some cases we have this community edition for this piece of software but we also have this enterprise edition that's all mm -hmm. closed you know and so the community helped helped us build this one um, and thanks community uh, for doing that. And now we're selling this other one, but we're, you know, we have this perverse incentive to not move changes down. Um, and it's it's just it's an odd world. And but the the only way to combat that world um, is for everyone to be informed with what the problems were originally, because you have to map, you know, the original fight to what where we're at now. If you if you don't understand how, you know, Linux triumphed over, you know. Sun, Microsoft, and Oracle, then you you know it's going to be way harder to figure out how it, how you know free software can um, can extend people's freedoms now and innate with when the giants are have completely different names in some cases. Yeah, it, it's sort of like it reminds me a little bit of you know trying to explain why somebody explained this to me actually, and I I rather like it even if it's not true, which is why is English becoming sort of the world's language when it's an accretion of a whole lot of other languages. It's not a, as much a standalone language as some others. It's got a bunch of Latin and it's got French and it's got Spanish and it's got native stuff in it. And it's because it's accepting and because it's, you know, it's not formal. It's far less formalized than German or French um, or Latin was in the first place. It's easy to adopt um, and it's easy to use. And then it be, and then it sort of spreads worldwide. And, um, and that's, I, I don't know if that, I mean, it's, it, all metaphors are wrong, um, but that's why they work. Uh, but it's it seems to be like that. It's like, you know, if you try to make the case that, hey, here's why English is like used everywhere now. Um, I don't I don't think it's just because, you know, the, the U.S. was this sort of dominant world power. I think it, it had a lot to do with U.S. entertainment, I suppose. But um, but it, it was less restrictive, but it, it had enough formalism in it so that it cohered as a language, but it was less restrictive. Um, well, I mean, in the modern day, we had a killer app of the Internet um, right, and, that, yeah. and technology, right? And so that was our killer app that, if, well, if you want to write software, you know, what, what language are the comments inside that software written in? Right. And, and what language constructs are even, in, you know, if you're writing C or anything else, it's a for loop, you know, that's, it's not a fewer loop or anything like that, right? Um, right. And so... There's, our language constructs are all wrapped into this technology, and so um, is it weird to call it the lingua franca? Um, but <laughs> mm -hmm. that, you know that points to a whole other era. But yeah, I mean that's you know we had this killer app that that encouraged everyone to do it, and free software had that for a while. Too. I mean, one of the reasons that free software became so dominant was its killer app um, during the dot com boom was the fact that you could install what was won the price so that was the big thing that won a lot of people over to it was the price but the second thing was was just the overall stability quality and performance and in particular in the case of the dot-com boom the fact that you could install this on a you could install linux on a cheap server throw apache on it 
and run as many websites as you could squeeze into the RAM of that machine, where the, alter the proprietary alternatives were you buy this incredibly expensive piece of hardware and the proprietary web server could only host one site at a time. Right. You know? you know, and so a lot of that spread of the software had to do with all of those advantages where, you know, people didn't know what they were missing because the proprietary vendors were sort of locking them into a certain a certain way. And then Linux was like, no, you don't. What? Oh, yeah, of course you can have multiple websites running on the same server. Why not? And, it, and aside I, from that, that, that's how things spread commercially. But think about um, how things spread in, in terms of a, a learning environment. Anybody anywhere in the world can you know download free software, assuming you have some basic hardware and teach themselves some sort of programming. Right. Mm -hmm. And you don't you don't need you know, you don't need to buy a license. You don't you know. Many, many years ago, I, I learned to make make things with products made by Adobe. Well, in order to even learn those products, in many cases, you know, 20 years ago, you had to shell out a thousand bucks to even get access to it. Right. And then but, but then, you know, this wonderful world of free software and, and web development came out where, you know, you didn't need all of those things. <laughs> You can you can you can learn these things for free if you if you know where to look, right? And that I think is um, I think that's equally as important as any sort of commercial application. Well, I mean, it started that's you started seeing that on the on the hardware side, on the consumer hardware side, where computer hardware started getting so cheap that the operating system license became a more and more significant part of the of the sticker price and a more significant part of the margin. Um, and you saw that the most during the the, the short-lived netbook era, where you had, I mean, that, that was the first time where I thought that there was a shot that Linux may actually be, you know, sort of take over the desktop for a while, was the initial netbook era where you started having all these super low-cost laptops that came on the market, very capable because they're running a nice, slim Linux distribution, um, pre-installed and supported out of the box, and it just worked. Um, and it lived and it survived for a couple of years. Um, and it, to the to the iPad. Point it started, well, it, it started eating market share. No, what happened was, was Microsoft saw that and said, we're, you know, this is, this is attacking us on the low end. We have to do something about the fact. And the reason there were two main reasons you weren't seeing windows on those netbooks at the time was one, they were so low resource that you, that there wasn't a viable version of, of windows that would run well on them. Yeah. Number one and number two, they were so cheap that the licensing costs would just blow out the the budget. You know, we're talking two hundred dollar netbooks here, three hundred dollar netbooks. You know, so a, a ninety nine, a sixty to ninety dollar license was just a huge part of that. So what did they do? They went through all, to all of these vendors and said, okay, well, one, we're going to have you double the RAM on all of these netbooks. Then we're going to create an, a smaller version of Windows to run on it. And we're we're going to work with you to have agreements so that you start only you start selling these netbooks with Windows on it by default and Linux starts fading away. Yeah. That was Windows C E, was that it? I don't think that was, was a PDA. Oh, was that earlier? Yeah, it was yeah that was yeah, earlier. Yeah. This was yeah, a, was a stripped down version of Vista, I think. Yeah, I, I think you're say. right. Yeah. In yeah, fact, I'm right. going to link in the in the comments here I'm gonna to link to Sean's video. <laughs> you remember years ago? The, the the HP netbook video addressing the fact that it had Windows on it. Uh, yeah, I mean, I'm gonna link there, to that one. That's a good one. Yeah, there was this brief period where it looked like Acer was going to take over the world with these little, you know, low resource Linux right. netbooks, and they almost did. And they almost did, but then they they it was so successful that it was shut down. You know. Yeah, they were things of beauty, many of them. I was so excited to get one at the time. It's so funny. And they've yeah. disappeared.
On that note, um, you have any closing words for us? Final thoughts on shining a light on on the, some of the freedoms well, we may have forgotten? Just people to weigh in. I mean, do we have comments under this thing? We do. Yeah. Yeah. Well, let's. Uh, if you go, if you go and find the podcast episode on the Linux Journal site, definitely <laughs> <laughs> track it down. Leave us comments. Yeah, tra- track down your own shit. Take a look. Oh yeah. Okay. Good. Okay. I mean, my main my main closing thought is that we, as much as ever, as much as the community likes to pat itself on the back about having dominated the world now, uh, we really haven't, and <laughs> we can't we can't rest on the fact that hey, we're buried underneath. Um, an Android phone somewhere hidden on top of a bunch of proprietary stuff, or, hey, we're buried underneath a bunch of proprietary cloud APIs. You know, the, the time for patting yourself on the back is, is over. Um, we have to, there's, we haven't won anything. And we're, and yeah. what we have, what we have, the battles we have won, um, if we don't continue fighting, we're going to, to lose. Um, because it's, there's all these incentives that are working against us. We have to, you know, reorganize and go back to first principles. So maybe the the takeaway there is uh, stop patting ourselves in the back and start kicking ourselves in the butt. There you remember, go. Remember yeah. the netbooks. Remember the netbooks. Remember the netbooks. Never forget. Never forget the netbooks. Thanks, y'all. All right. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.